We spent several months looking at the book of Ezekiel together. And as we've been looking at this book, we've been saying that it leads us into the heart and holiness of God. The book began, you might remember, with a vision of God on his throne, powerful and sovereign. It went on to show us God's refusal to tolerate sin. He is the enemy of sin. We've seen, too, what that means for sinful people. It means separation from God. It means punishment. Those are things that you and I have to grasp if we're going to understand the heart and holiness of God. But the later parts of this book add something else to our understanding. They show us God's purposes for the future. God promises to gather a people for himself. He promises to tend them like a shepherd cares for his sheep. He promises to make them new people. People who are different on the inside. People who love to obey him. God promises that one day evil and sin will be finally defeated and destroyed. His people will live in a world free from evil and sin. And those are also things that you and I have to grasp if we're going to understand the heart and holiness of God. God has plans for this broken world that we live in. He has plans for all those who turn to him. This morning we come to the final section of the book. This section has been called the capstone and the climax of the entire book. In the passage we're going to look at this morning, we learn about the heart of God's plans for the future. God is not content just to save a people. He's not just content to protect and change a people. God has determined to be with his people. In a sense, all his other promises were paving the way for this final promise we're going to look at. At the heart of God's purposes is that he and his people will be together forever. We're going to look together at chapters 40 to 48. And you'll find chapter 40 on page 871 in the church Bible. And we could give this the title, The Lord is There. And those words are in quotation marks because they're the last four words of the book. Forty-eight chapters, and it closes with the words, The Lord is There. These final chapters are a picture. They picture the fulfillment of a promise that God made back in chapter 37. We looked at it a few weeks ago. Here it is on the screen. Speaking about his people, God said, I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. This final section of the book is about how God will live among his people. These chapters describe a sanctuary and the name of that sanctuary is the Lord is there. Now, our passage this morning takes up 13 pages in my Bible. 
So I hope you've brought a packed lunch with you this morning. Actually, you won't really need a packed lunch. I think it's quite manageable for us to look at these together. We're going to start by reading the first five verses of chapter 40. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the fall of the city, on that very day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. In visions of God he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain, on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. He took me there And I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. The man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and pay attention to everything I am going to show you, for that is why you have been brought here. Tell the house of Israel everything you see. I saw a wall completely surrounding the temple area. The length of the measuring rod in the man's hand was six long cubits, each of which was a cubit and a handbreadth. He measured the wall. It was one measuring rod thick and one rod high. These verses are important because they introduce the final section of the book. They help us understand what it is we're about to see. First of all, this is a vision. Verse 2, Ezekiel says, In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel. So Ezekiel is still in exile in Babylon. But in his vision, he's being taken to the land of Israel. Now, something similar has happened to Ezekiel before. Back in chapter 8, he told us that in visions of God, he was taken to Jerusalem. And in that vision, he was given a tour of the temple in Jerusalem. But there's a significant difference between this vision and the earlier one. Back in chapter 8, there still was a temple in Jerusalem. Now there isn't. Back in chapter 8, Ezekiel's vision involved an actual bricks and mortar temple. But this vision is different. What Ezekiel is going to see now will be described as if it is a bricks and mortar temple, but it isn't. The temple in Jerusalem has gone by this point. It was flattened by the Babylonian army. And in any case, the temple Ezekiel is going to see is very different from the one he saw before. So this is not just a look back at the old temple. And there is no indication in this vision that God intends this temple to be built with bricks and mortar. That's a very key point. Way back when the tabernacle was built, God took Moses up on a high mountain. And he showed Moses not a vision of a temple. He showed him plans for building a temple. In Moses' case, it was a temple tent. And then God said to Moses, set up the tabernacle according to the plan shown you on the mountain. Here, God also takes Ezekiel up on a high mountain. But he does not tell him 
to go and build what he sees. Ezekiel is being shown what God is going to build. Remember, God's people are exiled. They're despondent. The temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed. And even before it was destroyed, God had abandoned it. We saw that in chapter 11. From that point on, it was just an empty shell. But here God takes Ezekiel and he says, let me show you what I'm going to build. Then go and tell my people what you've seen. Tell them what I'm going to do. And this vision of the future is presented in a way God's people could understand it. Back in chapter 37, God showed Ezekiel a vision of a valley of dry bones. And he used that vision to teach how he was going to bring people from spiritual death to spiritual life. God presented a picture that people could understand, lifeless skeletons, and he used it to teach them about spiritual reality. And the message behind that vision was, I will give new hearts and spirits to spiritually dead people. And here in the final chapters of the book, we find the same thing. God presents a picture that people can understand, a bricks and mortar temple, and he uses it to teach about spiritual realities. All that is to say, I believe it's a mistake to think this temple is going to one day be built with bricks and wood and cement. This vision is teaching us about a far greater kind of temple. And the vision divides into two main chunks. First of all, in chapters 40 to 46, we're shown a sanctuary with walls. We've already read the start of Ezekiel's temple tour. Look again at chapter 40, verse 5. He says, I saw a wall completely surrounding the temple area. The length of the measuring rod in the man's hand was six long cubits, each of which was a cubit and a hand breadth. He measured the wall. It was one measuring rod thick and one high. Ezekiel has been given a divine tour guide. And for the next two chapters, the guide leads him around measuring everything in sight. The walls, the gates, the courtyards, and the rooms. And the first thing those measurements reveal to us is that this sanctuary is a secure place. Now, we don't know or use cubits today, but if we change cubits into units that we're familiar with, we find that the outer wall of the temple is ten and a half feet tall and ten and a half feet thick. The gatehouses in the wall are about 45 feet wide and 90 feet deep. This place is like a fortress. The previous temple didn't have anything like this kind of fortification. What we're being shown is that this temple is not going to fall. The temple these men and women had known is a heap of rubble by this point. But this new temple will last forever. No army 
or no evil power is ever going to tear it down. Those inside it are safe and secure. That's one significance of all these fortifications. Another significance is given right at the end of chapter 42. So if you'll turn over several pages in your Bible, you'll pass by all the dimensions of the various courtyards and gates and rooms. You can see that from the headings put in your NIV. But if you turn over to chapter 42, we read this in chapter 42, verse 15. When he had finished measuring what was inside the temple area, he led me out by the east gate and measured the area all around. He measured the east side with the measuring rod. It was 500 cubits. He measured the north side. It was 500 cubits by the measuring rod. He measured the south side. It was 500 cubits by the measuring rod. Then he turned to the west side and measured It was 500 cubits by the measuring rod. So he measured the area on all four sides. It had a wall around it, 500 cubits long and 500 cubits wide, to separate the holy from the common. Those final words explain what this wall is for. It will make sure the holy and the common are kept separate. The word translated common is one that we've come across before in this book. Previously, it was translated as profane. And it was used before for what was happening to God's name. You might remember God said his name was being profaned. That means it was being treated as less than holy. And here, the wall around the temple will make sure that nothing less than holy gets into the temple. So not only is this temple not going to fall, nothing impure is ever going to enter it. And that final comment in chapter 42 leads us into what comes next. This sanctuary will be a holy place. If we compare the shape of this temple with the shape of the old one, we find a very significant change. The old temple was a rectangle. It was a long and thin building. But this temple is a perfect square. The end of chapter 42 told us that. The outer wall measured 500 cubits on all four sides. And of course we might say, well, so what? Why is the change of shape significant? Well, I said the old temple was a rectangle. But one room in the old temple was a square. That was the innermost room. The room called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. That was the place in the old temple where God was actually present. But now the whole temple is square. And the point is, God's holy presence will fill the whole of this new temple, not just a little inside room. Last week we thought about the significance of the number seven in Scripture. It's often used to signify wholeness and completeness. And throughout the Bible, the square is a significant shape. 
The place where God lives is always square in Scripture. If seven is the number of perfection, the square is the shape of perfection. What we're being shown is that this new temple will be a suitable home for God. His presence will fill it, not just a small part of it. Back in chapter 8, we said Ezekiel was shown the old temple. It was full of sin and uncleanness. And as a result of that, in chapter 11, he saw a vision of God leaving the temple. God got into his chariot throne and he took off. Ezekiel said, The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. God left. But this new temple will be both holy and secure. Unholiness will never find a way into this new temple. And so not only will God come to this temple, but he will never leave it. That's what we're told at the beginning of chapter 43. If you look with me at chapter 43, verse 1. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the visions I had seen by the Kebar River, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east, Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While a man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. God will come to this temple, he will make his home in this temple, and he will never leave it. But as great as that is, it creates a problem for everything and everyone else. In the old temple, the people could come part way in. They could come into the courtyard of the old temple. But God's presence will fill all of this new temple. The fortified walls will keep unholiness out, completely out. Only those who share God's holiness can be in the temple with him. But under those terms, how will anyone ever get in? Who's going to be bold enough to say they're as holy as God? And even if someone claimed to be, they'd be fooling themselves. But God won't be fooled. He sees us as we are. From what we've seen so far, it looks like God's going to be by himself in this new temple. And yet he made that promise. I will put my sanctuary among them. My dwelling place will be with them. How can unholy people enter God's presence? Well, this part of the vision points us to the answer. As we read on in chapter 43, 
we find that not only is the shape of this temple different from the old one, the furniture has been moved around in this temple. The old temple had an altar for sacrifices, but it was at one end of the temple, one end of that long rectangle. It was at the opposite end from the Holy of Holies. So here's a diagram of the old temple with the altar at one end of the temple. But if we look at a diagram of the new square temple, we find the altar right in the middle. The altar of sacrifice is the center point of this new temple. In the old temple, the sacrifices were brought in from outside. Lambs, bulls, and goats were brought in and offered up to pay for people's sin. Those animals didn't really belong in God's presence. And actually, they didn't really solve the problem of people's sinfulness. They didn't really count as an adequate payment. But here, the altar sits right in God's presence. And only what is holy can be in his presence. So any sacrifice that's offered up on this altar will have to be holy. Of course, the animals offered in the past were supposed to be without blemish. But this vision is taking the need for holiness to a whole new level. Only a genuinely holy sacrifice will make it onto this altar. And a genuinely holy sacrifice really will solve the problem of people's sinfulness. It really will count as an adequate payment. If men and women are going to join God in this new temple, it will not be by climbing the walls or storming through the gates. They will get in because of a perfectly holy sacrifice. Something or someone who belonged in God's presence will die. And that sacrifice will mean that unholy people can be counted holy. So far we've been shown a sanctuary with walls. And it's worth asking, as we've been trying to do in recent weeks, how the New Testament picks this up. Later we'll look at how the book of Revelation develops this. But the New Testament tells us God has already started building this new temple. It's not all for the future. In previous weeks, we've looked at what Paul wrote to the Christians in Ephesus. He said, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And in several other places, the New Testament says that God's new temple is not being built with bricks and wood and cement. It's being built with people. The New Testament says living stones make up this new temple. But what about the holiness of this new temple? How do unholy people end up in this new temple? Well, in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is described as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Jesus died as a sacrifice for sin. We know that. Just like the lambs and bulls that were offered up in the Old Testament. But Jesus was different in one very significant way. He was God's lamb. All those other sacrifices couldn't really deal with sin. Because they were brought into the temple from an unholy world. They didn't genuinely share God's holiness. And in the end, they were only shadows of the true sacrifice to come. But in Jesus, God has provided his own lamb. Jesus shared God's holiness. He was the lamb who really belonged in God's presence. He was the only sacrifice worthy to pay for sin. And so the New Testament can say, he has become our holiness. We don't have any holiness of our own. But when we're with Jesus, his death pays for our sin. His holiness becomes ours. It's wrapped around us like a cloak over our shoulders. We sang earlier that we stand before God in royal robes we don't deserve. And yet they are ours. Our holiness is a gift from God. It's paid for by Christ and it's provided by Christ. That's why the New Testament refers to Christians as a holy nation. Christ is our way in to God's new temple. He's our only way in. And he's also the key to the security of this new temple. Jesus spoke about those who belong to him and he said, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Obviously the picture is slightly different. Jesus talks about his hands instead of temple walls. But the message is exactly the same. God's people are secure. Not because of our own strength or ability. We're secure because we belong to Jesus. We're in his hand. Anyone can turn up and sit in a pew in a church building. But the church the New Testament talks about isn't made out of bricks. It doesn't have pews. It's made of those who belong to Jesus. But it's still a sanctuary with walls. The only way in is through Jesus. And all who are in are kept secure by Jesus. As the vision goes on, chapters 44 to 46 underline the point that holiness is the law of this new temple. And then in the last two chapters of the book, the focus shifts. It moves onto the land that's outside the temple. And we're given a description of a sanctuary that spreads. So turn with me over a few pages to chapter 47. Chapter 47, and I'll read from verse 1 to verse 12 of chapter 47. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. 
The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east. And the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from En Gedi to En Eglaim. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing." This has been called a description of a temple-centered world. And the verses we've just read describe a world filled with the life that flows from the temple. In the vision, Ezekiel sees a river, and the source of the river is God's temple. Verse 2, he says, I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple. Then Ezekiel and his guide begin to follow the river that's flowing out of the temple. The guide again pulls out his measuring line, and at regular intervals, he leads Ezekiel across the river from one side to the other. And what Ezekiel finds is that the water starts out as an insignificant trickle, but very soon it's up to his knees, then his waist. And finally, he won't cross it because the depth of it scares him. At this point, the guide says to him in verse 6, Son of man, do you see this? In other words, take note of this. This is important. Then having shown Ezekiel the growth of the river, his guide shows him the effects of the river. It brings life everywhere it goes. Things that were dead are made alive by this river. The sea that's mentioned in verse 8 is what we know as the Dead Sea. Some of you have been there. You've maybe had a float in the Dead Sea. But here in the vision, the river from the temple flows into the Dead Sea and makes it alive. 
We're told when it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. And it's all summed up at the end of verse 9. Where the river flows, everything will live. The life and holiness that's found in the temple will flow out of the temple and it will bring life to the world. So God's sanctuary is secure. It has walls. But this is not a place where there is stagnation. It's true that unholiness can't get into this temple. But it's equally true that life and holiness flow out from it. This picture is quite a significant one in the Bible. It occurs several times throughout Scripture. And in the New Testament, we find Jesus picking it up and using it. John chapter 7 records that Jesus stood up in the city of Jerusalem and he said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, Streams of living water will flow from within him. And John explains, By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. We've already seen that God's people are the new temple. And here Jesus says, When you come to me for life, not only will you receive life, you will receive my Holy Spirit. And then my life will flow from you. It will flow to the world around you. Jesus' point, and the point of the river in Ezekiel's vision, is that God's temple is not a place of stagnation. It's great for us to keep in mind our security as God's people. But we're not to become so inwardly focused that we end up more like a toxic pond than a flowing river. And we start to look like a toxic pond when we start infighting and falling out over insignificant things. Those are symptoms of a church that's so focused on being a secure fortress that it's forgotten the follow-up picture, the river of life that flows out to the world. Jesus has promised to hold us securely. And he has also called us to be channels of God's living water. And as we take that calling seriously, he promises that his spirit will work through us. The book of Ezekiel finishes with a promise. We're told that in this secure, expanding sanctuary, there will be an inheritance for all God's people. In chapter 47, verse 13, we read something that isn't really very surprising to us. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. These are the boundaries by which you are to divide the land for an inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel with two portions for Joseph. You are to divide it equally among them, because I swore with uplifted hand to give it to your forefathers. This land will become your inheritance. 
we've seen that the land is going to be transformed by God's life-giving power. In a sense, God's temple is going to expand and expand. And now God says that all his people are to receive an equal inheritance in this renewed land. There's no surprise that God mentions the Israelites. As God says, he promised long ago to give his people Israel a land. But God doesn't stop there. Look what he says down in verse 21. You are to distribute this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. You are to allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the aliens who have settled among you and who have children. You are to consider them as native-born Israelites. Along with you, they are to be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In whatever tribe the alien settles, there you are to give him his inheritance, declares the Sovereign Lord. That is an amazing expansion of God's promise. It's amazing because we have not heard this before in the Old Testament. The Old Testament always made provision for non-Israelites to live among Israel. But here, they're promised an inheritance among the Israelites. The future God is showing Ezekiel is a future where non-Jews will receive an inheritance as members of God's people. And this promise is picked up in the New Testament. For example, in his letter to the Galatians, Paul says this, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It's because of this expansion of God's promise that you and I can read the Old Testament and claim its promises for ourselves. Our inheritance with God is not based on our human ancestry. It's not based on the nationality that's stamped on our passport. It's based on our relationship to Jesus Christ. The final chapter of Ezekiel pictures the land being divided up among God's people. And the book closes with a phrase that's to be written across the whole of this final vision. The Lord is there. That's what this is all about. God being present among his people. And he has promised that it will be forever. We've seen that God has begun to build this new temple. It has begun to spread and grow. And that's still ongoing today. At this point in time, you and I may live in a place where the church seems to be faltering. But worldwide, the church is growing. And one day when Christ returns, this whole renewed world will become a temple for God and his people. 
That's the message of the final chapters of the Bible. Revelation chapters 21 and 22 describe a new heaven and earth. And what we find is that there's no temple building anymore because God's presence fills the new heaven and earth. All of creation has become God's dwelling place. Revelation 22 picks up the picture of the river. John tells us the whole earth is watered by the river of the water of life. And that river flows from the throne of God. And as John describes this place, he assures us that nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. At the center of this new world is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John discovers that what he is seeing is the ultimate fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Well, what does all of this mean for us today? Let me give you four very brief points. First of all, it means that Jesus is our only hope. We can have no part in this future without Jesus. On the other hand, if we have Jesus, then we have hope. Whatever our past has been, we can have peace with God now in Jesus. We have this future ahead of us in Jesus. Second, we must turn away from our sin. God calls us his holy people. We're going to a home where impurity has no place. So how can we be content with impurity in our lives today? Of course, there are impurities in our lives. The holiness that we have today is Christ's holiness. But how can we be content with those impurities in our lives? How can we rest easy with our jealousy and anger and lust, our bitter tongues and our self-promotion. We must turn away from our sin. Third, we must look outwards. Yes, it's true, the world around us can be a very hostile place. As Christians, we tend to talk about that a lot. But this world is also a place where God is at work. We are called to be channels of life to this world. Not to withdraw from it. Our words and our actions are to point men and women to the one who gives life. And fourth, finally, 
The one who gives us access to God's presence is worthy of all of our worship. And we're going to close our look at the whole book of Ezekiel with praise to the one who brings us near to God. We're going to sing, Yes, finished, the Messiah dies.